Welcome to another episode of the Echo Chamber. Oh my goodness, I've been looking forward to this one for such a long time. Mrs. Pauline Cutting is one of my absolute heroes. She is an incredible woman who has had an incredible career in medicine, has done some astonishing things, has achieved more than most in her long life and in her long career, and I am utterly privileged to be able to call her my friend. So without further ado, please enjoy Mrs. Pauline Cutting. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Echo Chamber. With me this week is someone that I know personally, who I have great admiration for, who was a kind of guiding light initially when I first started my emergency medicine training. And um, I, I could go on and on, but I'm going to let her introduce herself um, and tell us a little bit about herself. It's um, Mrs. Pauline Cutting. Hello. 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 How nice are you, Pauline? You. I'm very well, thank you very much. It's so nice talking to you again. It's been a long time since we've had a proper chat. Well, and you, I was just wondering how long ago it was that you were working here in Nisbiti Gwynedd. Oh, Spitty Gwyneth, my goodness, that would have been just after I come back from New Zealand, so it would have been about 2011, a good 11 about, years ago. Well, about 10 years ago, yes, I thought mm. it must be about that. Yeah, because well, we spent, I spent two years. We still yeah, yeah. miss you. <laughs> oh, it was very kind of you to say. Yeah, um, it was my first, it was my ACCS years. Uh, so my first two years of specialty training in emergency medicine I did in Espiti Gwyneth and I still have um, friends and people I speak to and message and tweet about um, from that time. It was a great time um, and um, I'm, it's, it's still very fond in my memories. Well, it's in, in general, it's a nice place to work indeed. I hope yeah. you enjoyed it. Oh, very much so, very much so. And really, if it wasn't for the sake of um, family and the fact that North Wales, and Spitty Gwyneth in particular, it seems to be like a geographical anomaly. It's about five hours from everywhere. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and, uh, I'm afraid I sometimes describe it as on the edge of the universe, but still. It, it does feel like that, oddly, sometimes, doesn't it? It's it it, does. it's, it's, it's it's its own microcosm of uh, North Wales and that area, that west, northwest Wales is very much a... A, a world of its own, isn't it? It is, but we love it. Yeah, I know. That's why I always say people who end up there um, and have, um, you know, settled, set down roots, they don't ever seem to move. Indeed. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's like I said, it's great to hear from you. The reason I want to talk to you on the podcast is because the whole point of this podcast is to get a little understanding of mostly it was meant to be for people on Twitter, but really it's it's a bit of a self-indulgence on my part to just talk to people I find interesting. And honestly, Pauline, you are I have described you previously, and I and please um don't be embarrassed by this because I know how uh, humble and modest you are in yourself, but I've described you as uh, one of my four um uh, heroes. 
my um but you're the only one that actually exists in real life because the others are <laughs> fictitious <laughs> um so um it, it, it's high praise from me um but it's it, it all started if i if you don't mind me just taking a minute just to explain how you were introduced to me when i first arrived in a spitty winneth um obviously i was trying to get my feet under the uh, under the desk and trying to figure out what was going on. And I started off in emergency medicine and I, I remember being told about this, like uh, this absolute um, hero of a woman uh, called Mrs. Cutting, who up until very recently when I arrived was basically running the department by herself um, in this particular the emergency department by herself uh, for years and years and years and then um, other consultants came in and started helping out and you know, the legend of uh, Mrs. Cutting was already large in my mind before uh, I ever actually met you and then I met you and you were such a lovely approachable and um, unassuming person um, and yet obviously formidable in terms of your knowledge and experience uh, and it came across straight away and within you know immediately for me um, I realized that you know you were someone that uh, I had great respect for um, and then it was only later I learned the rest of your story um, and how incredible it was um, so I've, I've had enough gushing from me now i want you to tell me about a little bit about your story how you went you know became went into med school and um you know how you chose your speciality and what happened next well that's that's very kind words from you and um i i was initially single-handed here as a consultant in in north wales but not forgetting my colleague vanessa popinghouse who was here when i arrived and, the, and was an associate specialist and we shared the load to be fair although i was nominally the the only consultant she actually took an enormous amount of the workload um but that's another matter and then and then um linda dykes came along as another consultant and then of course the trainees um came in as a as a result of linda's work and and that department has um has gone up and up I must say, since then. Um, how did I start out? Well, I, um, when I was a child, I actually wanted to be a vet. And it was a very um, astute headmistress who said, well, why don't you apply to the places that will take you on as, for basic sciences to do medicine and veterinary and um, keep your options open, which I did initially and then just before going to university I decided that I really did want to do medicine and I was very grateful to her really because I don't regret in any shape or form my career choice I've loved um, I've loved a career in medicine which is quite a long career now it's actually um, just over it's just 51 years since I was a medical student and first set foot in a casualty department in Liverpool uh, during my first week as a medical student. I went with a friend to the casualty department on Smithdown Road and um, 
Of course, uh, emergency medicine has changed a very great deal since that time, but the patients haven't changed much. And a patient fell over, cut his eyebrow, being cleaned up, the blood spurted, and I fainted on the floor, which everybody <laughs> thought was very funny, except me. But anyway, uh, I stopped fainting after that, luckily. And um, yeah, it's just over 50 years since I started as a medical student, which is um, half a century. Anyway, right. I, um, I had a, uh, looking back, I think I had a really, really, really good sound medical school training in Liverpool. Um, was lucky to get in, really. And um, and then I wasn't sure about training as a career. So I did, uh, well, as was the case in those days, um, moving from job to job, there wasn't really any run through training except um, a bit higher up. So people were applying for jobs every six months to a year sometimes two years so I did some obstetrics and gynecology which is always um which certainly set me in good stead when I was abroad and um then some surgery because in those days uh to to do obstetrics and gynecology you needed a surgical qualification and I think in this in surgery training was a period in accident and emergency and i just absolutely loved it uh, i loved uh, it first in liverpool um and then in london and so i decided after doing a surgical training and going abroad to do some trauma surgery i think i decided then that i would rather settle in accident and emergency and of course in those days there wasn't any um specific training in accident and emergency that came later with the um the uh, accident and emergency association that the ffaem uh started as an exam which you took sort of post frcs um and i must say since that time i think the training in accident and emergency or emergency medicine as as we now are has it just improved beyond all recognition i must say mm. fantastic so yeah. there we are that was the beginning I I know. I think a lot of people listening may not be fully aware of the history of how emergency medicine came about, especially people who don't necessarily um, know much about our specialty per se, because they've Indeed. not been training in it or don't have much interest in it. Uh, unfortunately, people don't have much his interest in history uh, nowadays. But um, it was always interesting for me learning about how it was very much a surgical specialty, it wasn't was. it, emergency? That's how it came out. It came out from surgeons. Um, and you yourself essentially trained as a surgeon. You became a trauma surgeon. Yes. Yes, it arose from the Casualty Surgeons Association, which mm. was its first, um, its first title. And mm. uh, I think I, I'm pretty sure Britain was the first, even before America, to um, even before the US to uh, move into a separate um, casualty surgeons association. I think mm. it was set up in 1967 or 68, mm. very early on anyway. Mm. So very forward looking. Yes, it was a forward looking surgeon who, um, who initiated it. Marvellous. So you did your training um, in and amongst the hospitals, but you kept saying you you worked in Beirut. Now I want to get into, yes. um, no, not, not in Beirut. Let me just go back. Sorry, hold on. 
13. Now, you told us about your training, but you yes. also told us that you did some work abroad. Now, I want to spend some time on your work abroad because this is the subject of uh, much intrigue for people who know your legend um, around North Wales. But also, um, it is the subject of a book as well, written by yourself, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, the Children of the Siege, which I have uh, a copy of, which is one of my treasured items, yeah, um, signed by yourself. And, um, yeah, The Children of the Siege. Tell us about what happened whilst you were working abroad. This was in the 1980s, wasn't it? 1985, it was. I believe. It was, yes. So tell us about what led you to go uh, abroad and then tell us the story about how... Um, what what happened out there? It was, I was interested in trauma and um, trauma surgery. And as I mentioned, we used to move from job to job in those days. There, there wasn't so much in run through training. And um, I had done a job, come to the end of a job in um, plastics and burns um, and was moving on and um, I was really just flicking through the British Medical Journal and looking at um, job adverts and of course as we know in the back pages of British Medical Journal there, there are um, jobs abroad advertised and I saw um, an advert for a job abroad for a, um, a, a British charity called Medical Aid for Palestinians and they were um, setting up um, field hospitals and surgical facilities in the Lebanon and it just sounded interesting so I um, inquired and they were holding an evening um, with a with a presentation by uh, Dr. Sui Chiang, Ms. Sui Chiang um, about the work there so I went to the evening and I thought it was very interesting and I signed up to go I think I signed up initially to go for six months um, to Beirut to a refugee camp to help them set up field hospitals with um, with operating theatres for trauma surgery. So that's really how I fell into it, if you like. I didn't know much about what to expect or much about the politics, to be honest. I think I went very naive. And in retrospect, that was probably a good thing. But um, so I went in the um, autumn of 1985 and actually stayed for two years. I did come home um, at one point when it was um, relatively quiet in the Lebanon. Um, and I worked in a Palestinian refugee camp called Borjo Brajni, where we set up a field hospital together with local staff. And there were um, other volunteers, um, expats like myself, Susie Whiten, who was a nurse, and others um, who were helping to set up medical facilities. Because at that time, Lebanon had been at civil war for some time. And so it was very difficult for people to move from area to area because of ongoing fighting and different areas in Lebanon and Beirut were controlled by different militias, armed militias on the ground. So it was difficult for some people, especially from the refugee camps, to gain access to any medical or surgical care. So all around in the refugee camps and elsewhere, um, field hospitals were being set up 
to be able to deal with medical and surgical emergencies. So, um, so I was working in Borja Brajni, which was a, a Palestinian refugee camp of about 9,000 people. And then a, a phase of the civil war began where some of the Palestinian refugee camps came under attack and uh, from a Lebanese militia and were surrounded the so-called camp wars. So, um, so there I was in Borja Brajni um, when, when a war began around the camps and people that camp was surrounded and attacked on several occasions such that we couldn't um, couldn't escape and couldn't evacuate patients so we basically got on with setting up an operating theater in the in the basement and um, operated on um, and treated patients with medical problems as well everything anything and everything came to us over an 18 month period so that's really um what happened and of course it did become quite desperate because of the situation um of ongoing bombardment and the surrounding of the camp such that people couldn't enter or leave and that meant also that equipment couldn't new equipment new supplies food couldn't come into the camp so it became really quite a very desperate situation um, yeah i mean if you don't mind um if i take the indulgence of just reading the prologue to your book which i think sets the tone for um a lot of what went on during that time i'm not i'm not going to try and read um more than this but i think the prologue is useful to kind of give a little bit of an understanding of some of the things that happened um and then we'll go into uh, some other details uh, a little bit later on the last day of december 1986 a small boy called bilal was crossing an alley in the palestinian refugee camp of borj al berezhny in southern beirut High in a building outside the camp, a sniper belonging to the Amal militia was watching that alleyway. When Bilal came into his sights, he squeezed the trigger. Borjal Berezhny had been under siege for two months, and Bilal was one of the hundreds of its inhabitants who had become casualties of that small bloody war that was being waged in the corner of Beirut, unnoticed by the rest of the world. I was in the emergency room of Haifa Hospital in the centre of the camp when Bilal was brought in on a stretcher. The bullet had passed through his right arm, both sides of the back of his chest and out through his other arm. My first sight of that child I will carry in my mind until the day I die. He was a beautiful, dark, curly-haired boy of seven years with a cherubic face and dark brown eyes. Both his arms and both sides of his chest were bleeding through his T-shirt. He was not crying or struggling, but his lips were blue and he was gulping for air like a fish out of water. The stretcher bearers put him down on the couch and Mashur, a nurse, cut off his clothes. Dr. Summer at once put a drip in his foot. I gave him an injection of local anaesthetic, then inserted a chest drain tube into one side of his chest. Dr. Summer did the same on the other side of his chest. As the blood drained out from his chest and his lungs re-expanded, the blue turned to pink and he was not quite so hungry for air. We gave him a blood transfusion to replace the lost blood and took him to x-ray. By this time I was unaware, I was aware that Bilal had not moved his legs once since he had arrived at the hospital. I promptly did some tests, pinching his legs. 
It became clear that he could not feel either of them. The bullet had cut his spinal cord. He would be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. I had been working in Bourges Alberegny for 13 months by then, and I had seen many injured children. But for some reason, Bilal's case moved me like none of the others. What had this little boy done to deserve such a fate? What part had he played in the struggle that was raging around me? He had done nothing, of course, and he had played no part. He was just a small boy who had been in the wrong place at the wrong time, a small Palestinian boy. I thanked God that the injuries to Bilal's arms were only flesh wounds. He was going to need his arms to move around in the future. We put him in a bed on the ground floor of the hospital, then tipped it up slightly to help drain his chest. He smiled. Yep. I mean, I've read your book, obviously, but I still get choked up just listening to that account. Yeah, I, I get choked up remembering, remembering him. He was very stoical. I've, I've met him on a, on occasion since. Of course, he is, um, he is indeed um, paraplegic. He has no movement in his legs, and I've, I know now that he he lives now in Denmark actually because he had family there, and long after the um, the civil war ended in Lebanon, he was able to move there. But I I met him several times. Um, later on in the camp and he remained very stoical very cheerful um yeah i mean that's just one story isn't it that's just, it is one, just one child one child World war yeah yeah and multiply that by a factor of thousands and hundreds of thousands um you know you can see how much physical and mental trauma these conflicts can um bring about into the world indeed uh, and not just you know obviously not just in lebanon beirut palestine israel all of the countries around indeed. the world happening everywhere and there are there are tiny stories like this that are, just go unheard unrecognized indeed, and they do um, you know, it, 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 when you think about it, sometimes when I think about it, I I, feel, I find myself almost overwhelmed by the suffering that's occurring um, around us. Uh, but it's also, and I've always mentioned this, well, I mentioned this a number of times, is it's so important that we actually shed light on what's happening and humanize everything that's happening because numbers on the screen mean nothing, but stories like Bilal's are uh the things that actually touch us at a uh, emotional and I think, yeah I think, because, I think because we can identify with the individual concerned i think you're right the numbers don't mean don't mean much of course they mean something but but um we can identify as human beings i think we can identify uh with an individual and with individual stories, because we 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 see them, I think as as ha could, this could be ourselves, our children, um, and indeed he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that can happen to any of us, mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. Yeah, 
<sighs> so tell us a little bit about the people you were there with because obviously you were not there by yourself there were always, there was also the, the the Lebanese doctors the Palestinian yeah. doctors and as well as the European doctors that were there as part of the same mission that you were on yes there were in Borja Barajni, um that I was working well, there were um European nurses and the Palestinian doctors I'm still in touch with um with most of them actually and with the wonderful um operating theater sister Nuha that I am in touch with um yeah every few weeks we um we exchange um messages she was she was fantastic I'm still in touch with Dr Ridder who is um really one of the best honorable most honorable doctors I've ever met he's uh working in Germany and then other doctors are still working in Lebanon which of course is suffering um well suffering terrible economic woes at the moment um but yes I um yeah we were working as a team a good team uh in the hospital well in in such circumstances and of course in those circumstances in that small hospital um people came I should mention people came to shelter in the hospital when there was bombardment of the camp um, and, and bombing um, that the, the houses in the camp were pretty flimsy and um, not able to withstand much in the way of bombardment. So people often came to shelter in the hospital, which was a larger building, four or five stories high. Um, and of course sometimes it was a bit busy and they got in the way but generally they helped and helped to feed patients and helped to wash them so um so the the inhabitants and the whole um the whole camp really helped in the care of um the care of the wounded and and the the uh, injured wow yeah remembering it all <laughs> yeah do stop me if you're finding it a bit too um if, if no. it's making it too emotional no i to be honest i love to think about them and and oddly i don't have very terrible memories of the time i have good memories of the time um if that sounds a bit odd good memories of um of the people how they coped i'm still friends with with many of them um and and my memories are really uh, good ones. I think I gained enormously from the experience, and yeah, don't really have very bad memories. I I think I had more bad memories at the time when it it looked like um, it was possible that that the that the camp would fall, and threats were being made that there would be mass killings, mm. uh, and and a massacre, which which ultimately didn't happen. I might say that the the fighting came to an end when the Syrian army um, interposed themselves between the the fighting militias. But um, I think that that was more that was more terrifying than anything. The idea that the camp would fall or be you know forced into submission and that there would be yeah. a massacre of people. Well, that's just it, isn't it? I mean. <sighs> It's all well and good knowing after the fact that a massacre didn't occur, but when you are be you are there trapped in a camp with people saying that they're going to come and kill every living thing uh, in sight, 
that's 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 an existential fear isn't it and i'm gonna i'm gonna go again to your book because the quote that i have from your original um run of your book that, that i have a copy of again like i say is one of my treasured items there's a quote from you on the very beginning uh, at the on the very front cover of the page and i think this is the quote that makes me, that solidified in my mind your status as um a living hero it's quote we will stay with the people of the camp until the danger is over we will remain with them to live or die with them end quote well it 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 yes it felt like that as you as i'm i'm sure you know um i met ben who is my husband um when i was there i had i had met him before but anyway we worked together there and um I remember one night we we did say to each other, well, at a terrible time, we said, I said, we could die here. And um, that was a possibility. But at the same time, we were doing what what we felt was was um, was valuable work. We were looking after the injured and these people were were acquaintances or friends. And well, apart from the fact that we couldn't leave anyway, but um, we wouldn't have we, we wouldn't have wanted to leave i think i think when you're a health profession you you don't really want to just walk off it didn't um it just didn't occur to us i don't think you can just walk away and say well i'm sorry it's got a bit tough here now um but um we're going home so it didn't really occur to us um that 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 we would leave because we were just carrying on doing the best we could for the injured and the sick if that makes sense. I it does. It, I mean, Pauline, I will. I will say this. I think it makes sense to you, because I think that's the kind of person you are. I think you want to see the best in people, um, but I can guarantee you that there aren't there aren't many people that would have stuck it out the way that you stuck it out there. Yourself, um, oh, obviously, Ben as well, who I know your husband and the rest of them there um i think in if if that situation occurs and the option is given that you can leave i think a lot of people would leave and you know it's not it's not to it's not a shameful thing either self-preservation no, is no, the most is, is the most primal um instinct it is but i think i think as you are the way you are being humble and modest i think you are attributing <laughs> a incredible attribute that you have within yourself to others because you're also a very generous person but i think what you did there what's written in the in the um book the accounts uh from other people who know you i think it's all it all points to a exceptional character and uh and and genuinely just an exceptional person really and i'm not the only one that thinks that way because when you came back to the uk um after the 18 months or so two years or so that you spent out there you were actually recognized your efforts were recognized weren't they indeed yes uh, yes it was quite a surprise yeah. tell us what happened well i think it became an issue. I think I mentioned that it became obvious that um, 
there was a possibility that there was going to be the camp would be overrun and there would be a lot of people killed so we decided as health professionals we obviously didn't want that to happen especially as it was going to include us so uh, we decided we should try and make some declarations to via medical aid for palestinians to um the un powers that be to bring an end to this fighting and prevent a massacre so we made public our presence in the camps and um, asked for help from the international community and eventually indeed um the fighting was came to a, a stop when the syrian army interposed themselves but i must give some credit also to to um, some journalists, both Brent Sadler and Marie Colvin, uh, Marie Colvin and Tom Stoddart, who um, Marie and Tom have uh, both um, died. Marie actually died in, um, in the war in Syria, covering the war in Syria, but they braved their way into the camp and out again, um, risking their own lives to tell our story outside uh, which i'm sure contributed to political pressure being put on to um to bring the fighting around the camps to an end and um, so this our story of being trapped in the camps and what we were doing as was brought to the public attention so we became uh, when we first came out of the camp there was quite a lot of press attention on us and um yeah ultimately i was also um, awarded an OBE um, by the Queen, which I was very, very grateful to receive because I also felt that it um, valued the work of all the medical team, which included my Palestinian colleagues in the camp who um, continued to work on in the camp. So I, um, I was very grateful and to receive such an honour. Yeah and is very deserved if um if i might say that's not exactly what my dad said but that's another matter <laughs> <laughs> there we go <laughs> um so you met ben um your husband now your husband yeah. um not quite in lebanon but um you spent a lot of time obviously with him there yes and were you did you get married when you got back or we did when we um ben was a nurse and had worked in lebanon um since 1982 actually during the um israeli invasion and had he'd been working there he'd been a a dutch student and um had done it, it well he'd been a dutch student and been to a palestinian refugee camp even before that but then decided to do become a nurse to go and uh, work in lebanon and was there in 1982 so he had some experience there but when we came back we he wanted to go to medical school so we lived in amsterdam for um for a few years while he went to medical school in amsterdam and became a doctor and then um during that time also we um we we took some time out just between lebanon and him qualifying we went to the gaza strip for six months and practiced there and then when 
Ben was qualified as a doctor, um, he wanted to be a GP and that's how we came to North Wales. So we lived in Amsterdam for uh, I think it was seven or eight years and I worked in accident and emergency as it was then in, in Amsterdam. And then, uh, then we came subsequently to North Wales with our family and we're, we're both still working. He's working as a GP doing out of hours and I'm still working in the emergency department, um, not 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 leading anymore, thank goodness, but um, I'm still working and we now have grandchildren, so I'm quite a busy grandmother as well. My goodness, I don't know where you get the energy from, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, you've got, a, you've got a young family. I know, I know, I know, and there's, there, and they are... Keeps you young. Keeps you young. I hope. I don't feel particularly young at the moment. <laughs> nor me, Farbod. Nor me. I know. I know. Oh dear. Um, yeah. I don't notice there was a pandemic, but. Uh... <laughs> oh. um, I've said I'll learn. I'll finally learn what to do with my mask when it's all over. <laughs> Uh, I've got a situation now as my beard's growing. It's at a weird, really awkward length um, where every m movement of my mouth just pulls the mask down. Uh, so I'm constantly readjusting it. And I remember at the beginning, I don't remember, uh, I don't know if you uh, were like this, but I remember at the beginning we were very strict on when you put your mask on, Yeah, it stays on. Yeah. And if it comes off or you touch it accidentally or whatever, you take it off and put a new one on. Yeah. No Where I think those days have kind of, yeah those days have gone now. Everyone's just readjusting, pulling it down, putting it to the side. <laughs> I know. Honestly, I think the 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 level of like cognitive fatigue that's amongst us uh, as health professionals um, from every yeah. know, from every level is just oh, it's palpable, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, how have you found the last two years? Well, in the beginning, um, it was quite, quite spooky, actually, quite spooky. Uh, yeah, anxious coming to work. I think like everybody, um, like most health professionals, they were just afraid to catch the damn thing and take it home to their families and do harm. Yeah, I think that was the biggest concern for it me was, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I we were all afraid I, to do that. Yeah, I was very, um, I don't know how to put it, was it lucky? But I got it, I got it basically straight away. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it in, um, uh, I think, the 20th of March or 21st wow. of March, 2020. Uh, wow. Really early on. Um, and uh, it was almost inevitable. In fact, I got it at the same time. Um, as about four or five different consultants, but I was the first to be tested positive for it. Wow. And uh, all four of us, I think it was four of us, uh, were involved in the same case. Gosh. And it was the very first, like, proper sick COVID, you know, with yeah. sats of 50 and struggling to breathe. And, wow. And uh, our processes, even though had been set up, weren't as robust as they could have been. Well, um, were they anywhere? We just didn't know, yeah. did we? I know we just threw it all together, and yes. I think I think that's the biggest lesson I said um, before. Uh, the biggest lesson 
that I can give to anyone about the pandemic response as well, uh, and how we dealt with it is we ju we just we, we did what we could. We winged it. Um, yes. And we 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 weren't entirely sure. We had very little data. We made loads of assumptions. Um, and it it wasn't panic. It was just uh, it it was preparation with very little data and very little um, foresight as to how things were going. And some people being very pessimistic, some people being more optimistic. Uh, and of course, the truth lay somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in between. But what I was amazed at, really, and I'm, and I is is the way that the the medical teams, you know, across the whole country, adapted. Um, to new information you know information came and was acted upon you know if not if not weekly you know daily or weekly so that i was very impressed with the way the medical teams the clinical teams uh, were able to move with the information very quickly you know research has been incredibly quick mm. the recovery trial and um the way that you know we think of research as taking years and years and years and years to be um to come into practice really wasn't the case and that i think that was very impressive from the yeah, I mean, way it was managed yeah absolutely i mean it just it's a testament to how if you have you know engaged and driven people yeah pulling in the same direction how much we can actually get done yeah once we actually decide we put aside differences and start going this is the collective goal that we have yes and we need to pull towards it but you know i mean we shouldn't really be surprised should we because human beings have been doing things like this for since we've been on the planet yeah. the reason that we exist as a species is because we can get together and build skyscrapers and pyramids yeah. and things like this so it, it just needs that unifying force yes. and uh, conscientious forethought and we can achieve everything that we put set our minds to um and it was very nice to see that in a in a service like the nhs which is so disparate and compartmentalized yes uh and everyone you know acting in their self-interest we are kind of in the era of the individualist uh rather yes, than cooperation yeah. but actually it's it's when we put aside our individual needs and look at the goal that we wish to achieve as a community of people that we manage to achieve great things so I, we 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 sound surprised purely because we've worked in a system where people have been kind of like holding their own and protecting their own and making excuses about their own kind of little niche that they've done but actually when something like the pandemic struck that kind of mindset became counterproductive and everyone saw that and realized that no we actually have to do something to <laughs> as a common goal and yeah, um, yeah, like i said the, the speed of change the speed of research um you know all of the stuff the vaccine coming about yeah. um all of that is testament not to the conspiracy theories that people have been putting out there it's but no. to the testament of a uh, human in endeavor and will we can do these things if we set our mind to it
Indeed, I know the vaccine, that the vaccines came so quickly and so well was extraordinary. But I was, um, I must say, I, I was reading the British Medical Journal, which, which, I, which I love the BMJ recently. Um, it's become a, a must read for me. And I was reading the, um, the editor's choice by um, Kamran Abbasi about the, um, how the drug companies haven't extended the, um, the knowledge base to Africa and mm. how, you know, we're all on this planet. We're all mm. human beings and they are the, the drug companies are protecting their their um their knowledge rather than allowing the african countries to develop you know to giving them the knowledge base to to be self-sufficient in producing their own vaccines so not everybody has behaved well let's face it no no but it's always going to be that way but i think Isn't it's it? getting to the point i think where people are seeing how pernicious and um kind of offensive to human morality that kind of behavior is yeah indeed it's becoming more obvious more tr uh, transparent that this stuff is happening and people are examining why it's happening a little bit more you know yes. because 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 we unfortunately live in this kind of it's not even true capitalism it's almost like a pseudo capitalism it's yeah. it's, it's socialized capitalism shall we say it's uh what happens is, and, and the mindset of the people at the very top of these businesses, these giant corporations, is always due to what's making, what will make the best profit. It's not They're about by, seeing value. Exactly, only value is profit. But it, it, it's the system that we've created that's the problem, because if yeah. the CEO of a company turns around and doesn't make as much profit as he could for a shareholder, then they'll go to their AGMs and vote the guy out and get the guy who's got less scruples. Yes. They'll make them more money. So it's yes. the system that's the problem. Indeed. Why people get these roles is because they're willing to do the things to get the most profit for the shareholders who own the business. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to we're not going to address it by pointing fingers at individuals and saying no. oh, this company's bad, that company's bad. We've got. It's almost like. A, we need to develop a fundamental shift in what we understand as true value. What is value to the human being? Is Indeed. it profit? Yeah. Well, that is value to someone. But things like, you know, art, uh, security, policing, uh, prison services, health services, education, these don't have value in the sense that they won't make you much profit, but they have immense value to society and to yep. human prosperity um yes. you know we we've got to kind of change that 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 kind of capitalist paradigm and not to say that you know everyone knows why you know i'm a, I'm a card carrying socialist but everyone um it, it's not to say that it's socialism is the be all and end all of everything but it's 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 a start in a way of changing the way we think about things yes. um Seeing value in that that communal spirit of lifting each other up and making sure that everyone has a place to stay, everyone has security at home, everyone has food security and fuel security. This is not; these aren't radical thoughts necessarily. No. I um, think you can you can see that in terms of you know coming back to emergency medicine and the hospital. Um, we all know that one of the reasons 
we've got overcrowding in our departments is because people are medically fit for discharge and sitting in hospital beds because of a lack of social care and you know social packages we've been told don't promise your patient when they go home that they're going to have a good care package because those care packages don't mm. exist because we, we i was thinking on the radio this morning they said we have got something like a hundred thousand vacancies for carers and carers carers are paid so badly you know mm. I mean, how can we have working poor people who shouldn't have to work as hard you know work hard yeah. and not be able to pay their way or pay their heating bills or buy food that that that's such a i know such a, a, a you know an, it's an appalling state of affairs yeah, yeah. It, 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 in hard. in a world with so much plenty in yes. a country with such wealth yeah. that we have people who work to look after the most sick and vulnerable in our society yeah. who can't afford to feed themselves i know it's, it it is it it's an obscene state it's, of affairs it is it absolutely is and the cost of, and this is the funny, the funny thing the cost of actually looking after these people properly giving them a living wage making the again it comes down to this idea of value making that aspect of society valuable looking after yes. the and poorly giving it value it would be it, it's pittance compared to some of the stuff that uh, our money is wasted on indeed indeed my father lived the last year of his life well he lived both my parents lived to be to, to be old my father died at 96 and for the last year of his life my mother looked after him partly um, but she was already in her 90s and then he had carers and it they provided the most wonderful wonderful kindness and service to my father um for, for the last year of his life and he was able to be looked after at home by virtue of the fact that that these carers came every day to look after him and and i saw that um that kind care being delivered to my father and the idea that the that they should be so underpaid that they can't afford to eat and feed and heat their homes is is just um just beyond the beyond really yeah well anyway. we could go into that for a long time yeah volume. <laughs> but that would solve a lot of the overcrowding in the emergency oh, departments absolutely but again you know uh, unfortunately we have legislators that don't value that kind yes, of work indeed. Yeah. have a political system that's set up in such a way that any kind of meaningful reform or change to the way that people's actual priorities are represented yeah is um truly represented uh I mean, it's a huge issue, and I think it's something that we can't really go into <laughs> in a, in this in this podcast. But it's something that we have to all look at uh, for the future, not just for ourselves, but for kind of the the, the next the coming generations. What kind of yeah. society do we want to actually live in? What kind of world do you want to wake up to in ten years' time? Indeed. <sighs> anyway. Pauline, I know we've been talking for a long time and it's been so lovely talking to you and I wish that we could just keep talking for hours and hours and hours, but I know I've taken up so much of your time already. So 
I'm coming to a close now, but I have to ask you the same question I ask everyone at the end of my podcasts, and that is, what is the strangest thing you have ever experienced? Well, now, I, I think, I think it must be in in Lebanon during an operation. Um, is this a, is this a bit gruesome? Anyway, um, during an operation, and of course the, the the population were a refugee population, so they had the diseases of poverty and parasites and such like, and and we were doing a laparotomy on a on a, a gentleman and out of a small hole in the small bowel um a tapeworm crawled out sorry that's a bit gruesome but it crawled out and of course it was still alive so it was moving so we um so we put it in a kidney dish and it crawled out of that so um anyway <laughs> in the, i know in the end we just pulled it out and um and carried on and finished the operation but of course that that um that didn't actually cure the person so he he had to have some medicine when he was recovered to um to remove the rest of it but i do think that was absolutely surreal i must say <laughs> anyway that's probably a bit gruesome but that was just extraordinary <laughs> that's very Sorry, I mean, I, I, it's fine most of our listenership will be uh of the medical persuasion so i'm sure they won't mind too much but um how how big a tapeworm were we talking about oh it was about between two and three feet long i would think oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, yeah. grim yeah. oh dearie me uh, that's go. beautiful that's, that's, that's what a lovely way to finish <laughs> That's what, that's what I can think of. I'm sure I've seen a lot of weird stuff in my in my career, but that does stand out. Oh dearie me! Okay, well, I, that, I can I can honestly say I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of something uh, more more presentable in a minute. But there you go. <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. That's perfect, um, Pauline. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure entirely listening to you speak. Um, I hope well, you enjoyed also it. My pleasure, I must say. I do remember you being here, and I must say this: I remember you very fondly. But also, I do remember you as a doctor who used to come and help in the emergency department when sometimes when you were on nights in another specialty and if you knew it was busy you used to come and help so i haven't forgotten that by the way oh, thank you well it, it, it's it's it was a bit purely for me again coming back to my tribe i found my tribe obviously a couple of years previous to this and even though i was doing work for other specialties as part of my training you know if i was on nights i would come down to the ed and i'd see yeah. patients and just keep my eye in you know yeah. <laughs> Pauline, thanks again for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible, incredible person Mrs. Cutting is. I hope you've enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Every time I speak to Mrs. Cutting, I think what a wonderful person she is. I've been your host at Emergency Bod. Dr. Farbod. If you want to support the podcast, 
please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the echo chamber. See you again soon for another episode.